Hello, I'm Caroline Baum. Welcome to Life Sentences. This year sees the welcome publication of a selection of weekly columns by Australian writer Charmian Clift, selected by her biographer, Nadia Wheatley. Under the title Sneaky Little Revolutions, the collection showcases Charmian's distinctive conversational style, in which she establishes an intimate rapport with her readers on subjects ranging from suburban domesticity to politics, travel and social change. On her return from Greece with her husband George Johnston and their children, she noticed and questioned everything about Australia in the years from 1964 to 1969. Had it really changed as much as people told her it had? In addressing that question, she developed the voice of her public persona, a performative Charmian who was bohemian in her lifestyle, progressive in her politics and always ahead of her time. She and George were a golden couple who became mythic in their own lifetimes and beyond. Nadia Wheatley calls herself a reluctant biographer. She spent 21 years writing her doorstop biography of Charmian, and it remains unmatched to this day. She never met Charmian, but spent seven years in a relationship with her son, Martin, and is the executor of his estate. I talked to her at the South Coast Writers' Festival, which was appropriate given that Charmian was from that part of the world. I thought what we would do is we're going to jump around a little bit, sure. but I thought that perhaps she was born in Kayama, she grew up on Bombo Beach, there's some very seminal images from her childhood of her cottage at high tide after a storm being garlanded with seaweed, which is a, a beautiful image. But let's just jump forward to Wollongong, since we're in Wollongong. She goes to high school here in 1936, she's won a bursary. Are the years at Wollongong High School happy, unhappy? How does she do while she's here? She describes herself as very unhappy at school here and as being friendless. Charmian was a strange, paradoxical person. I guess all of us have outside and inside versions of ourselves. So she came across as amazingly gregarious, almost aggressively self-confident. She was a tall girl. She was a very physically attractive girl. She was a fabulous at sport, a fabulous swimmer, having swum in the sea at Bombo Beach, which some of you may know is a very wild beach. But actually she didn't make friends very easily and I would say that in her whole life she had four close female friends mm. and one of them was a young woman at Kiamra, a slightly older girl, Theli, with whom she used to go out on these adventures and they were very innocent. They seemed very wild at the time but I do stress they were sexually innocent adventures with steel workers and young men. So she claims that she lost all her books on the train in the second year and was too embarrassed to say that she'd done so, so didn't have any more books. But I think it was more that she was restless to get out into what she called the big bad world. She lived in that little settlement of Kiama that's now been bypassed by the highway, which mm. I call the new highway, but it's <laughs> been there at least 12 or 15 years. When I first began working on this, I used to go and stay in what was the motel, which is now a series of sort of Airbnb places down at Bombo Beach and the whole little community there was still intact. So her house is there. It's got a second story now but it was literally the last house in town. So she grew up with 
this strange background in the class sense, and I am coming to Wollongong, but what had happened in Kiama also affected how she felt at Wollongong High School. Kiama in those days was divided very much in class terms between the quarry workers, the labourers who lived there, and the genteel folk of the town. And Charmian's whole family didn't fit into either classes. So her father was an engineer at Bombo Quarry, that wonderful promontory that strides into the sea that's now got the sewerage work inside it. But though he was the engineer there, he hung out with the labourers. He hung out, he was politically very left, and his mates were the men he worked with. Mm. Her mother was a bit of a snob and would have liked to have known the women in town. The Cliff children had posh English-style accents because their grandparents and their father was were English immigrants and so they didn't fit in either with the working-class people of town or with the genteel middle class. And I think the same affected Charmian when she went to high school. It was a pretty rare thing to go from Kiama to high school. Mostly the kids would stay on at Kiama, which was known as a superior public school. So you could stay on there till 14, which was the legal leaving age, and most Kiama kids did. But she got this state bursary for her books and she got into Wollongong High School. But again, it was a not fitting in thing because she couldn't hang out with the kids here after school because there was a very limited train timetable. So she'd have to be back on the train, back Mm. to Kiama. So she didn't really connect with after school activities that might have been drama or extra sport. So again, it was split between the Kiama and Wollongong side. Okay, so let's now jump forward again in time to this collection. So this was written following her return to Australia in 1964 from living on Kalimnos and Hydra, those two Greek islands. Can you give us a sort of potted resume of where she's at in her life when she comes home? Why did they come home? Did she come willingly? Okay, so Charmian had left Australia in 1951 in the Menzies era and she had felt herself very much in rebellion against that authoritarian, patriarchal, utterly boring, conservative era. Initially they went to London where though George had a great job, she Charmian was not fulfilled and didn't find the big thing she was looking for all her life. But in Greece she did. She found the big thing and she also found a way to combine looking after her family, doing her writing and having her social life, her, her life with friends. Because though she didn't have those intimate friendships, she was, of course, a very gregarious person. She was also a very committed writer. So while she was in Greece, she wrote two personal travel books, which, like the essays, were 40 years ahead of their time in genre and style, and she wrote two novels. Most important to her of all her work was an autobiographical novel she was writing all through her life from her childhood with a change of names for the protagonist, for the main female character. But by 61 or so, this character had the name of Cressida Morley and Charmian was writing that novel when George, who'd been very sick with tuberculosis that was as yet undiagnosed through every Greek winter, began to write the book that became My Brother Jack. And that was in the winter of 62 into 63. So Charmian set aside her own book in order to literally sit on the step 
between the kitchen and the living room in their Greek house. Greek, their Greek house was very beautiful but very cold and damp in winter, so they kept the fire going in the kitchen. And she sat literally on a cushion on that step and talked that book out of him. And that is his account as well as her account of it. So she put her own work aside. They both believed he'd written the great Australian novel. The novel was accepted. He's invited back to the Adelaide Arts Festival for the launch in February 1964. He comes back to great acclaim. And she's in Greece with the terrible job of packing up the reluctant children and packing up all the belongings and coming here, which she didn't want to do. She didn't want to leave Greece, but also coming here in the shadow of her husband. So she hasn't completed her own great book. And George is, as he tended to do, the golden boy receiving all the limelight. And she came home essentially to very little. She didn't have a job. She'd had a job when she'd left in 51. She'd been working for the ABC. And so she was really coming home almost in the role of the artist's wife because her four books had not been published here in Australia. As as a colonial country, which it was in the publishing world, books published in England had to be come in under a, another agreement. And so Australia, her books had been published in Britain and the States, and she was unknown as a writer when she arrived. You know, one of the things that I find um, surprising that I just gleaned from one of these essays, can't remember which one, was that Although the time in Greece was really intense and very important to her, and despite the fact that you say that she came back unwillingly and she really came back because of George's health, because they needed to access the healthcare system, because he ended up being in hospital here for a long period of time. He needed a lot of care when they got back here. She's interesting emotionally because she says at some point that as soon as she left Hydra, as soon as the house there was sold, she lost her emotional attachment to that place. Do you believe that? Do you think that's true? No. I don't believe that. I think she was kind of whatever the phrase is, sort of whistling in the dark. Or trying to, was she trying to make it so? Was she willing herself to think that? I think so. But also, I mean, when she did come back, and this comes out in in the first essay in this book, which is called Coming Home, she talks about experiencing a feeling of imminence. And there was a sense, we've, we've got to differentiate when we think of the 1960s between 1964 and the classic sort of 60 time, which is 60s era, which is really the late 60s into the early 70s. So in 64, it was still a pretty dead place. Menzies was still in power. Women couldn't go into public bars. Pubs were shut on Sundays. There was draconian censorship. The pill was very hard to get. It had come in, but if you weren't married. So women were not yet really in charge of their own bodies and, and being liberated. But Charmian was a kind of a weather vane and mm. she was picking up this sense in the atmosphere that a change was coming. So I think she did find it more exciting than she had anticipated. But her connection with Greece was always incredibly strong. So in another essay in this book, it might be called A Migrant's Return. Mm-hmm. She talks of a man called Yanni who had been a carpenter on the island of Kalimnos where the family had stayed when they first went to Greece in 54-55. And they had actually helped sponsor Yanni to come to Australia to make the new life as so many Kalimnians did. And there they were. They hadn't been long 
back here themselves after a decade and Gianni turned up on the doorstep and he's going back to Kalinos, which still doesn't have any industry or any jobs. And she says, but why? You've done well here. His clothing's great. His carpentry's gone well. And he said in Greek, there is no life here. Hmm. And that really summed up what she herself was feeling. That that particular type of life in Greece, there's a Greek word, kefi, for the particular type of excitement you have. It's not just smashing plates and dancing with your shoes off, <laughs> that sort of it, but a particular type of excitement and way of living. She wasn't finding that. We have at least one Greek person in the audience who is nodding uh, at both your <laughs> impeccable Greek pronunciation, but also at the at the spirit that you're describing. Well, we'll we'll come back to that and that feeling that she had, I think, of being a migrant herself. She was always yearning for a life that was uh, wilder, freer, lived in brighter colour somehow, in, in more sunlight perhaps. But I'm just wondering, Nadia, do you think that as far as she was concerned, I mean, a column is a very hungry beast. It has to be fed relentlessly. But from her point of view, do you think everything in life was material in the way that, say, Nora Ephron and her sister Delia and their mother, they, they all felt that everything in life is material, everything is fair game. Is that how she fueled the column? She just thought, anything that happens, I'll write about. No, I don't think that was how she felt at all. And fast forwarding somewhat to the end of her story and to George Johnston's second book in his trilogy, Clean Straw for Nothing, I think she felt it wasn't fair game at all when the portrayal of her semi-fictional character, Cressida Morley, ended up in her husband's novel. So no, this is a very difficult topic for any writer but I think it's an even more difficult topic for the family and friends of writers, that nexus between private and public. So, yes, she did put the kids into the column. She put the cat into the column. She put her daily life into the column. But I think she was very careful in terms of what she put in and what she left out. And if you um, – not many of her letters remain, but if you – read her letters to her friends, one friend in particular, June Crook, you'll see that it, the domestic life was really rather difficult. And one reason why she didn't put it in was with George's health being as bad as it was, it would have been a darkness that would have turned the reader's off. So George was in hospital from August, I have to look at it, from August 65 into April 1966 and then again through most of 1968. And in those times, Charmian was effectively a single mother. Mm -hmm. So she was a single mother of three teenagers, not an easy job, but she was also the carer. And we didn't even have that word carer in the 60s. So there was no acknowledgement of the role that she was doing going every day to the hospital to visit him, taking clean pyjamas, taking flowers. She used to take flowers in, also taking in his mail, acting as his secretary. But also she was the family breadwinner. So though George could get a literature board grant and earn royalty money from my brother Jack, it was the weekly smaller amount of money from the column that was paying the gas bill or paying the food bills. So no, I don't think that what we're seeing is necessarily the full story. It's Mm. a true story. And so like many columnists, she developed a persona 
And here I come back, and it's probably because I'm in this South Coast area, I'm coming back to the laughing girl, Cressida Morley. The character that we get in the column is the persona of Cressida Morley. So it's it's slightly at variance to the real Charmian Clift. And this came up, I did a session last night where Richard Walsh, who had been her editor for some of these essays, was present. And he was talking about the woman he met when she used to deliver the essays to him was just at slight variance from the woman who had written the bits of paper that was giving that he was being given. How, how would you how would you define that variance then? That there's obviously a gap then between real Charmian and alter ego Cressida. And so is it is it just that Cressida's life is a little bit smoother and she's a little bit more polished, and that mm. that Cressida was probably running pre- uh, sorry that Charmian was running pretty ragged. Run, Charmian was running very ragged with all those duties. Yes. And so Cressida was a, a happier, and when I call her the laughing girl from Kiama, it's actually an expression by the artist Cedric Flower, who's another South Coast connection because he en- ended up at Jeringong. But when she was a little girl at Kiama, she wasn't happy at school. And I think as early as that, reading some of the not perfect short stories about a fictional girl called Sarah, which is the earliest alter ego I've found. Just as some children invent an imaginary friend, Charmian invented an imaginary Charmian who sort of lived alongside her and was the happy, outgoing, successful, popular little girl that she really wasn't. I do like the fact that you get a sense from these columns of a life that is bohemian and that sounds wonderful and spontaneous. Everything in life seems so spontaneous in the household, but she never pretends that she is a domestic goddess. So as well as bohemian, you could interpret it as the house is basically a mess and she's not terribly organised about cooking meals because she's not that interested in it. Funnily enough, there she sort of does herself a bit of a disservice. Part of this persona is I use the word ditzy for it. And in when the column first went out, there was a photo of her, a tiny little thumbnail at the top of the column, but she was wearing a hat that I see as a rather silly hat that was worn at a rakish angle. And that was obviously the sort of persona at that stage. Later she was allowed to have a much more realistic, genuine photo as, as her trademark photo. But at times she makes herself out to be a little bit more chaotic Chaotic. because I think too she was writing for her brief was to write for women remember these are going out in the women's pages so you do try to make your women friends feel like you're not really succeeding at this (laughs) this mother and housewife wife business either but you know certainly Jason would who I interviewed for the latter stages of this biography would say like there was dinner on the table and things were done but again remembering she didn't drive So she's sort of way in the boondocks of Mossman and the shops are up the other end. And in those days you couldn't just sort of order a Woolworths delivery. So actually keeping the house running was often a difficult job. in this voice that she develops because the voice is so intimate and so conversational and so you feel like she's talking to you as if you were her best friend. Is that a voice that she developed 
almost instantly or that grew over time because she does she uses various stylistic devices and one of the ones because I know there are many writers in the room that this may be appropriate or relevant to one of the things she does is she will address her reader directly in that second person pronoun so she will say you will be doing this you will be doing that you will see this you will notice that and it's it's an unusual voice but it's incredibly direct Yes, well, two responses to that. So many of the fans, and they used to write what we call snail mail, bags and bags of mail used to arrive at the Sydney Morning Herald and be sent on and carried to the house by Terry the Postman, who's also a character but a real person (laughs) in the essays. And so many of them said to her... And they've said later to me over 21 plus years that they felt as though she was having a conversation intimately with them alone over the back fence or over the kitchen table. But that voice was developed in a book called Mermaid Singing, which was Charmian Cliff's first solo book. So she'd written three collaborative novels with with George in the 50s, one of which won the Sydney Morning Herald Prize, her first book, High Valley, which is... Overtly set in Tibet, but is really set in Bombo. Um, <laughs> Tibet, Bombo, same dish. <laughs> comes back to Kayama. But in Mermaid Singing, which was written very, very fast, she's a very slow writer, but she wrote one book fast, and that's Mermaid Singing, which she wrote in the summer of 1955, the first summer in Greece, and the summer that they were on Kalimnos. Now, by this amazing thing, that book has just been, is being translated into Greek, and I'm about to go to Kalimnos in two weeks for the launch of the Greek translation. (laughs) And I've also, just this week, met the granddaughter of the woman Sevasti, who was the household prop, but who also let's say, taught Charmian her Greek feminism on the island of Kalimnos and Sevesti gets into mermaid singing. So I'm in Kalimnos mode in my head at the moment, but I have seriously reread mermaid singing for the first time in some years recently. And again, I was struck by something I've been, I have believed, but I believe it even more strongly now, that in that first solo book. She developed the voice, she developed the persona in Mermaid Singing, George and Shane and Martin, Jason's not born yet, come in and out of the story. And she does the time shifts that she often does in the essay so that the essay will sort of balloon off from time present in the kitchen or even here I am writing the article with Martin up the end of the table playing chess and Shane doing go-go dancing down that end of the room and teenagers in and out. She'll balloon off into some political or philosophical idea and then come back to the room. She started all of that, the time shifts and that personal voice She and her particular brand of feminism, which is individual and pre-second wave feminism, all began in mermaid singing. So that I see this collection as her third travel book. So she wrote the first travel book on Kalimnos, the second travel book on Ethra, and this collection or the whole oeuvre of the essays. Think of it, she's describes herself, as you've said, as a migrant, Mm. half alien, half Australian, coming home. And just as she turned her anthropological eye on the people of Greece and in the Aether book on the tourists, now she was turning her eye upon her fellow country folk and writing an account of adjusting back 
to this land. So when she took the brief of this job, and initially it was only to be for a few essays, it wasn't a brief to last, she already had that and she slipped into that that mermaid singing voice and that mermaid singing way of addressing the reader. Well, and we know that mermaids are irresistible and so that explains why we all are so captivated by this voice. Now, there's one thing I've got to pick you up on there because you said something that's very tantalising. You said Greek feminism. So what is Greek feminism? Just give us Greek feminism 101. Well, I've got a Greek in the room here, so maybe I should ask. (laughs) On Kalimnos, again, part of the extraordinary thing that happens in mermaid singing, Charming had done a lot of preparation, as had George, for going to Greece. So they'd read Robert Graves's two volumes volumes of Greek myths as well as reading Homer and Herodotus and so on. In Robert Graves's Greek myths, which had come out in that period in the 50s, Graves talks about the old triple goddess, the Earth Mother religion, how when the Hellenes invaded and brought the Olympian gods, it's Graves' thesis as a historian that the triple goddess, the Earth Mother, remained and was subsumed into people such as Athena and Aphrodite and so on. This is pretty commonly accepted these days, but it was a new idea then. Charmian turns that idea on the head, and this is partly from knowing Sevasti and the other Greek women on the island, and and says, well, okay, maybe the triple goddess ended up in the Olympian gods, but she's alive and well and living in Greek society today. So it was Charmian's view that if you looked superficially at Greek society, you see the men in the coffee shops not doing very much and the women at home doing all the work, but that ultimately the women have, you're nodding, massive power. Now, Kalimnos is a matriarchal society. Property on Kalimnos goes down through the women. So houses are left, and this was stressed to me by Stella, Sevesti's granddaughter, only last Saturday. Houses are left through the female line. The sons get nothing. And when the man marries a woman, if the woman isn't happy with the marriage, she can kick him out because the house belongs to her. So Charmian in mermaid singing espouses, and it's not wildly all over Greece, but definitely in Kalimnos, this is how it works. So Stella the other week told me how Sebasti gave an apartment, two houses and an olive grove to her mother Maria, which they still have. It came down the female line. Charmian developed this idea. She had already read Simon de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. So she had that modern idea of feminism but she merges that with this earlier idea which I too felt when I was living there in Greece that the power of the women is incredibly strong when it comes to the point the women are able to assert that power they might not do it 364 days of the year Mm. but on the day they do it it's there so we have to be very careful with this because of course when In the bit of the women's movement that I was involved in, the women's movement that kicked off in this country around 69, 70, of course there was and there still is a habit of wearing little triple goddess things and incorporating that mythology into a new wave, second wave feminism. But that's a slightly different thing. What Clift, and Clift was anyway doing it, as always, 40 years before anyone else. Wow. When you look at this anthology, you'll notice that each essay is about three or four pages long. So how many words would each piece have been? A thousand words. About a thousand words. So incredibly 
economical. And they do mostly follow a very traditional form. You talked about sort of a starting point, which might be something that she's observed about her everyday life, going off on a sort of seemingly random, seemingly free associating wander into other ideas and then coming back. So it is very much a circular structure. She always claimed that she'd never read Montaigne because her father (laughs) tried to force feed her Montaigne and so she resisted. But she had clearly read Virginia Woolf and quite a few of the essays of the 20s, E.M. Forster and so on, who do have that structure. But of course, she never actually called them or very rarely called them essays. She called them her pieces. Mm. And she was really very modest and unprecious about them. So she obviously, because they were in the newspaper, she must have thought, well, they're tomorrow's fish paper. They've got no kind of permanent place in, in her body of work. She was always working on something else, presumably. Well, there was always this poor novel which she could never get back to because she, because of household duties and because of the weekly essay. So it was a rigorous deadline and, and one of the essays is called On Being Unable to Write an Article. Now, probably just about every essayist in the world has written an article about being unable to write an article. It's a, it's a pretty good topic. But in that she talked about coming up every week smack bang against crisis and annihilation and there was a sense that that was true. That's the real Charmian as well. And there was, for such a personal person, there was that sense of revealing herself in it. As to whether she thought they were fish wrap, she certainly kept carbons of the typescripts and she did in her lifetime bring out a collection called Images and Aspic, which was the fruits of the first year of the column. And when she died in 1969, she was putting together a second collection. So when I looked through the typescripts, and this was a sort of a labour of a year or so because they weren't dated, my part of my research for the biography was to get the typescripts for the essays because a lot of them are very autobiographical and also to get the newspaper column and date them and collate them. But I found that she had some of hers in bundles and it was clear that she was putting them together in a second collection. George did not follow her guidelines at all completely, but he did make a collection posthumously Mm -hmm. um, which came out in 1970, the year after her death, and it was called The World of Charmia Clift. George, as a good journalist, believed that her political essays would be ephemeral, they would be fish wrap, and so he only collected the non-political ones. So he collected them under sort of rather loose headings like travel or memories or reflections or this, that or the other. And Martin did very curious spidery illustrations. It's a lovely book. But I felt that it left out a whole lot of clips. So back in the 80s, I collected all the ones that weren't collected. So those were two more collections. And then, as Caroline said, this is 80 out of 225. So I tried, I've put them pretty much chronologically. So you can read the story of her life and the story of the politics of the 60s fairly chronologically, but also to intersperse as she would. You'd never know from Thursday to Thursday whether you're going to get a political one, a personal one, a more philosophical one. What would come would always be a surprise. The rhythm rhythm of that changes absolutely from week to week. So I'm wondering, I mean, it's fascinating that obviously she didn't think of them as fish wrap because she kept them in collections. So she obviously was quite proud of them. How did you make the selection of 80 out of 225 that is in this 
collection? Well, with great difficulty, but it was a matter of, you know, sort of laying them all out like a like a crazy game of racing patience and then trying to have that balance between the different styles. But also particularly, for instance, in regard to the history of the Vietnam War, which I suppose the protest against that war was something I myself was involved in. It was a bit of history that I remember. And so I wanted that, which is not just the story of protest, such as she writes an essay about LBJ's visit in October 1966, but to see that development of her feelings about those matters and her support for young people, her opposition to the war from her second essay, which was her second essay, was an anti-conscription essay written on the occasion of Martin's 17th birthday, but when conscription had just been introduced so she could see that in three years her son might have to go to this war and other threads of politics that goes through a very significant one is her opposition to the haunter in in Greece. So when the colonels overthrew the democratically elected government, Charmian was one of the vice presidents of the Committee for the Restoration of Democracy in Greece. By being this, she blacklisted her own name actually from returning there when the colonels were in power. And also she I think she wouldn't have returned because there was a movement amongst the left of not going there and paying tourist dollars to that shonky regime. So to keep those important political things in their place, but yet to let the personal essays, such as an essay about the death of her brother, to put that in the right place, I felt was important. Also, the story of the children growing up and the story of George being there and in and out of hospital, to run those autobiographical threads through it. And um, given that she did touch on some controversial subjects. Did she ever write a column, Nadia, that an editor rejected? Indeed. Well, I have never found in published form the one I put second in this book, and I know it's second because I know the date of Martin's birthday, so I know when it it was written in that particular November of 64. I've never found that in published form. So probably an anti-conscription essay at that time was too radical. But the fame, the one that famously got rejected was an essay written in 1968 called Death by Misadventure. So it was a pro-abortion essay. And it evidently got rejected, well, it got rejected just in toto. And interestingly, it was around that time that Richard Walsh, publisher and editor of a progressive women's magazine, a new magazine called Poll, approached her to write some longer form essays. And so she took up that job with Richard. She kept on writing for the Sydney Morning Herald, but in accepting the job with Richard, she expressed to him that she was rather annoyed at the Herald at that particular time because they'd rejected this one. But in terms of nitty-picky editing, that didn't happen at all. I interviewed Maggie Vale, who was the editor of the Women's Pages at the Sydney Morning Herald, to whom Charmian's copy went, and she described in her words that Charmian's copy was like the sunrise and the sunset. It came up and it went down. So in all of those weeks, she never missed a deadline, and that was intensely important to her. Occasionally she had three weeks annual holiday, but for instance in the um, May holiday of 69, she was catching up writing her poll essays. But Maggie described to me how and what a different world it was. On Saturday at midday, Maggie would send the Herald driver in the car 
to the house at Mossman to pick up the typescript <laughs> and the driver would bring it back to the Sydney Morning Herald, no internet, and Maggie would read the essay over her lunch and then, in her words to me, she'd ring up and say, Hi, Charm, Mag's here, loved your piece, um, perfect as always, no need for any editing, and it would, it would be put to bed, as the phrase is, that day, Saturday, the Thursday women's pages, which was a separate supplement, would be put to, de- to bed and it would go into the women's pages direct. So apart from those two cases, big cases of censorship with a capital C, I don't think there was ever censorship. And of course, and we can talk about why, but her column was far to the left of the official editorial policy of mm. the newspapers. Mm, absolutely. Now, one of the recurring themes, which we've kind of touched on a little bit, given her sort of status or her sense of herself as a migrant and of this imminence that you talked about, this sense of the potential of the country, she she comes back all the time to this sense of a place, that of, of a sense of the country having changed and yet not changed, or changed a bit, but not changed enough. And that also goes with her own kind of, I think, tall poppy syndrome sense of the lack of curiosity of people here, so that no one ever asked her about what life was like before she came home. And so she attributes that sometimes to jealousy, sometimes to insecurity. And then there's also, again, this this recurring theme of complacency and of blandness and of a kind of meek submission to authority. I would just like to put that into context by quoting someone else to show that Charmian wasn't alone in thinking this. Donald Horne's book, The Lucky Country, must be the title must be the most misquoted phrase in <laughs> Australian literature, if not the literature of the world. And what Horn said was, Australia is a lucky country. Right, this was 1964, so this is the year Charmian came back. Australia is a lucky country run mainly by second-rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas. Yeah. Um, and did, I did, think- did they know each other? Oh, they would have, yes, yes, through journalism circles. Of course, Donald Horne was fairly conservative. Yes. But I think that sense of living on other second-rate other people's ideas is what she was picking up on. She was picking up, and it, this comes across in the first essay, Coming Home, on a sort of smug complacency so that she came home, she's been away since 1951 and they, people kept saying, oh, you'll notice a great change in the place now and they meant either skyscrapers, which as she said even in Greece you did know skyscrapers existed, or that, you know, there was a, a, a cosmopolitan, as the word was, um, grocery on the main street. So as often we come back to the fact that, you know, you can buy continental food and she talked about how in the change that had happened, and some things had changed, there was she feared that her country fellow country folk had lost one of some of the good stuff Australians had had, like the larrikin spirit and the sense of independence. And just quoting from the end of that first essay, she says, "I suppose that what I've been really looking for is evidence of a spiritual change, a burgeoning and a bursting of the image qualities." into a real cultural and social flowering, spiky and wild and refreshing and strange and unquestionably rooted in native soil. 
not just Australian singers, but Australian singers singing Australian songs, not just Australian dancers, but Australian dancers dancing Australian dances, not just Australian actors, but Australian actors acting Australian plays written by Australian writers expressing the Australian ideas and challenges in Australian idiom. Not a continental way of life, in inverted commas, but an Australian way of life developed naturally from its landscape, climate and its own heritage. Hmm. One of the things that's interesting is how much ahead of her time she was in terms of Aboriginal issues and the idea, she articulates the idea of an apology to First Nations people. So could you say something about that? Yes, so in 1967, Sidney Nolan made one of his rare and gracious appearances back in his home country and Story Walton, the producer who had, the film director who had made My Brother Jack, for which Charmian had actually written the script, and he'd made a really interesting documentary with George Johnston talking to Russell Drysdale, thought it would be great to get Sid and George, who'd known each other and been mates and were both Melbourne working class boys, to do a similar thing, but to go to the centre where Sid had done a number of paintings. Well, it didn't pan out because Sid no longer wanted to have any part of George, but he could sort of tolerate Charmian, and George was also too sick to go. So Charmian ended up in the in the Olgas, as it was then called, Cartajuta, and Ayers Rock Uluru with Sid Nolan and a film crew, and then later ended up at Alice Springs. And so this is 1967, and in her essay about Alice Springs, she said... In unequivocal terms, I want to say sorry. I feel I want to say sorry. And there was no ifs, buts, you know, my ancestors only came out here 20 years ago sort of stuff to it. I think this is the first articulation of saying it as simply as sorry Mm -hmm. that I've found from any non-Indigenous Australian writer. Reading your biography in parallel with reading this collection, so I was looking very closely at the years that these pieces were coming out. At a certain point, she does start drinking. And I was just wondering whether you could just comment on the fact that several people say when they see her again after several years of absence, she's looking down at heel, her teeth are stained, she she is drinking at parties and sometimes to excess. So can you just talk about Happy the tension? Happy to talk about it, but I, I um, um, commenting on her appearance to me seems extremely strange because she did arrive back and she'd been away for 15 years and everybody here had been here. And so at the, fe- at the welcome party, which atrociously George well-meaningly threw for on the night she arrived, um, she couldn't recognise people. I see photos of her at that time or photos like the one of her on the cover of the essays taken much later and I think what an incredibly attractive 43-year-old, 46-year-old woman she was. So I don't understand the people, one of whom was her alleged best friend who went public talking about bad teeth and and looking really down at hell. There was something... It's like this getting things wrong in Kiama. Um, one person who wasn't being hostile talked to me how she would often misjudge what you meant to wear to an occasion. 
and that probably was she'd been away for quite so long. So she'd wear too fancy a dress to a barbecue and a, and something too casual to a fancy event. So she sometimes got things wrong. She did on occasion, there's one essay in this book where she examines her clothes the next morning to see how far gone was I last night? And um, everything's all perfectly folded on the, the um, chair, but there's no feet in the stockings. And she realises, I've taken my shoes off and been dancing again. Um, <laughs> this is the Kathy. This is in her head, in her body, she's still back in Greece. Of course she was dancing. Now, in regard to the drinking, and this comes, I don't think she was drinking more in Australia than in Greece. And her GP, who I interviewed, said that he he personally didn't think that Charmian or George had a drinking problem. He felt she was self-medicating to sometimes get through the evening after a bad day in this amazingly difficult situation. But he pointed out, like, she's getting a work in every week, she's keeping the household running, there's food on the table, she's earning the money. Drinking wasn't a problem in her life. But the other thing about the drinking, which is often talked about in the ether context, is by people who'd see her and George down at the port at midday having lunch and drinking. They would have been up on their roof terrace where they shared their workspace since dawn. So they've been writing from 5 or 6 a.m. through to 12.30 midday when they go down to the port every day to meet the midday boat, which is the only way the mail comes in and heaven for, you know, there might be a royalty check in it or a letter from an agent with um, acceptance of a book. So, And then the kids would come down from school, have lunch with mum and dad on the port, maybe a lunch would go for two hours, everyone would go home, have a siesta, they'd do a bit more writing, have a swim, and then maybe go out in the evening. But, of course, the people who only saw them on the port would not have seen the eight hours' work. Mm. I mean, George wrote 25 books in those years. Mm. Um, You don't do that. Yeah, Um, that gives a very different perspective. And, again, she... I mean, I've read in another biographer's account that she was always missing deadlines with her essay. She did... Her editor says she didn't miss an, a deadline. If I look at the chronology, there's one every week. Mm. And finally, uh, Nadia, I want to ask you about her legacy in terms of her influence on the next generation of writers. So when you think about writers like Helen Garner or Kate Jennings or perhaps Robert Desai, are there obvious essayists or columnists or writers of creative nonfiction that you think owe a direct debt to Charmian? No, I don't because those essays of our generation, we weren't really the demographic that were reading her. Some people my age, so I was the age of her elder son, Martin, I was in my 20s, you know, we were just running, raging around getting on the streets doing things, um, inventing second wave feminism. So I don't think we were, we knew of Clifton, whatever, but we, it wasn't, a ver- I don't think that was a very shaping of our consciousness thing and frankly when Charmian died it all kind of ended Mm. and even when the biography came out it won a couple of prizes but there wasn't a wild amount of interest. Charmian's position today this year is 500% higher 
than it ever was in her life. And it's just fantastic to see, to see the Greek translation coming out, to see the essays coming out, to have a session here in Wollongong. It's just so affirming. And the reason for this is that she was 40 years ahead of her time or 50 or 60 years ahead of her time. She was so far ahead of her time that she's really relevant today. Nadia Wheatley's command of her subject is really impressive. She can answer any question without faltering or without a shred of doubt about what Charmian thought about any subject from smoking to conscription. This collection will introduce Charmian to a new generation to whom she will sound as fresh and relevant as she did back in her day. I have no doubt that if she were writing today, she would have a huge following for a subscriber blog or possibly on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional owners and elders, past and present. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe or leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>